A very good afternoon to you, or good morning, depending on where you are in the world. Um, welcome to the LSE, virtually, for this uh, online event. Uh, my name is uh, Tony Travers, and I'm Associate Dean of the School of Public Policy and a Professor in the Department of Government here at the LSE. I'm very pleased to welcome Ian Dale as our guest to the LSE this afternoon. Uh, as many of you will know, I'm sure, Ian is a commentator and broadcaster who presents the evening show on LBC Radio. He's a visiting professor at, uh, of politics and broadcasting at the University of East Anglia, and I think an alumnus of there. He co-hosts a weekly podcast with former Home Secretary Jackie Smith called For the Many, and the Ian Dale Book Club podcast, the Ian Dale All Talk podcast, and a Not podcast with weekly... Um, cross-question political panel show. He's a regular columnist for The Telegraph, The Evening Standard and other uh, news outlets. For those of you on uh, Twitter in the audience, and Twitter is going to get discussed, I suspect, today, um, the hashtag for the event is hashtag LSE Get Along. And this online event is being recorded and hopefully, with luck, will be made available as a podcast subject to there being no technical uh, uh, difficulties. There will be an opportunity, as ever, for uh, Q&A, and the best way of doing this is to put questions for Ian in the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Christian's questions will then appear uh, on uh, the side of my screen here, and I will be able to forward them on to Ian. Um, so what I want to do, really, is before I get going, by the way, as I said, this is um, to... Um, to, goes alongside the Ian's book, which is being launched, or has already been launched. You can see it in uh, very plain sight just behind Ian on his screen. And um, this is obviously a book. It's called Why Can't We All Just Get Along, Shout Less, Listen More. And everybody know. I think everybody watching will know how we've all come to think that somehow discourse, public discourse, has been made more difficult slightly more aggressive, perhaps a lot more aggressive, cruder in recent uh, years. And against that backdrop, the challenge is how we continue to have a robust debate with the ideas being put forward, tested, explored, explained, and so on, but without resorting to, uh, well, frankly, just abuse. Um, now, uh, at the beginning of, uh, the very beginning of Ian's book, uh, I'm now talking to you, Ian, I should say. Oh. Uh, you quote a tweet which effectively, effectively inspired you. So here's, the, here's my copy of the book. And if I can just turn to uh, page two, which is where this... So I'm going to have to bleep out some of this. FYI... I think, I think we're all adults. Uh, well, even so. FYI, <laughs> FYI, I'm very happy to engage... This is, sorry, this is your response to somebody who'd sent a tweet to you. FYI, I'm very happy to engage in polite debate on any issue. I probably respond more than most. However, if you call me a C asterisk asterisk T, use profane language or insult me for no reason, I will mutably block you. No questions asked. You never dare say it to my face, so don't do it here. And that kind of gets to the nub of all of this, doesn't it? But before we get to that nub, can you just explain you must have thought that tweet may have pushed you over the edge to write the book, but this must have been building up as you watched public discourse for several years before you started. Is that right? 
It is right. I mean, th th there were several things that prompted me to do it. Um, the, the first was uh, back in 2018, uh, when we were at the height of all of the Brexit shenanigans. And, I, and believe me, this book is not all about Brexit. There is one chapter about it. But I, I think the Brexit debate really crystallised a lot of the arguments that I'm putting forward here, where people just wouldn't accept that there was another side to the argument. And I've always thought that if, if, you, may, if you don't make an effort to uh, first of all acknowledge that somebody else might have a different point of view to you and they have every right to hold that view then i think you're not going to get very far and if you're trying to engage in a debate how can you really do that if you don't actually understand why somebody is arguing what they're arguing whether it's about brexit or anything else so you have to start from that standpoint it sounds a bit basic but i think we've lost the art of accepting that other people have the right to hold a different view to ourselves. Too many people nowadays are seeking self-validation. Uh, that they, they watch the news channels that they think they agree with. They, they won't listen to some... I mean, the, the number of times I get people saying to me, oh, I love listening to you, Ian, but I'm not listening to James O'Brien. And you think, well, why, why wouldn't you listen to somebody that you disagree with? Because then you can marshal your own arguments in, in a much more informed and better way. So it, it was the Brexit debate that I think sort of really brought home to me that the that public discourse was just going completely awry. And I will admit that I played a part in this, that um, I'm a human being just like anyone else. And if somebody calls me a twat or whatever on Twitter, my instant human reaction is to respond and instantly start typing out a tweet, calling them something worse. And then it escalates from there. And, and it, it was it wasn't just that tweet that you've just read out that uh that really i think a lot of people could relate to when i tweeted that it got thousands of retweets and i, I just call it my twitter rules if you do this i will block you and um a lot of people got in touch saying oh can i use those as my twitter rules i said well of course you can it's a public public platform why wouldn't you um so that was back in 2018 and then in uh, christmas 2018 um, the Queen, in her Christmas message, effectively said, look, why can't we all just get along? And I mean, she didn't use those exact words, but that was the message. And the Mail on Sunday got in touch and said, would I write for the next Sunday's newspaper an article based on that premise? So I wrote this 1500 word article, got a massive response to it. And I didn't then think, oh, I will right now write a book. Um, but a few months later, Emily Maitlis published her book, Airhead, which is a brilliant, anyone interested in broadcasting, buy it. It is fantastic. It's essentially 40 chapters of where she goes through her broadcasting career uh, and relates various anecdotes. And I mean, it's got quite amusing, but also very informative about how news works. And I started reading this and I thought I could write this book. And I started jotting down sort of chapter headings, things that she wrote about just would spark off a memory in my mind. So um, I got in touch with my agent and said, look, I've got this idea for a book um, with Emily, similar to the one Emily Maitlis has done. And um, they said, well, HarperCollins have come up with an idea for a book for you uh, along the decline of public discourse because they saw your Mail on Sunday article and they want you to write a response to James O'Brien's book, How to Be Right in a World Gone Wrong. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to have a book that I write be defined by anyone else. I, I, I'll write my own book. Thank you very much. It's not going to be a response. Uh, and that's where we got to. We sort of melded the two ideas together. So there are sort of lots of autobiographical bits in this, from particularly uh, for my career in, in politics and the media. Um, I, and I try to bring in 
the the public discourse element into each chapter and then at the end of the book i've i i got to the end and i thought you know what i'm not i think i've diagnosed a lot of the problems have i come up with the solutions so and then i thought well rather than go back to each of the 19 chapters and sort of add bits in i'll do 50 ways that we can improve public discourse some of them are are pretty obvious but it's i think i don't think anyone's ever written them down all in one place before so there, there was an agenda just to sort of try and i want everybody who reads the book i want at the end of it to think well how how am i contributing to this and what can i do to make public discourse better which is a bit sort of come by our motherhood and apple pie i know but that's that was the that, that was the aim of the book now that's a very helpful intro to the to the whole logic for the book and of course buried in what you've just said are two slightly different issues really one is the willingness of people to accept other people have a point of view or they believe in their country and they have their own patriotism or whatever it is and separately the language that people now use which question they didn't use in the same way in the past and i'm right to think there's two issues tied up in this one is simply the willingness to accept other people have a point of view which is rational and should be treated fairly and then secondly the words that are used in pursuing a debate or discussion. Is that right? I mean, are, are, there are sort of two, they're overlapping, but distinct issues. That They are. Um, I think also the opportunity to put your viewpoint forward is, is so much bigger now than it ever has been. If we were having this conversation, say, 25 years ago, 1995 the internet was barely I mean, it did exist but um, email existed but and websites did exist but fairly rudimentary there was no social media at that point um, well with the advent of blogs in the early 2000s and then twitter 2000 and well, twitter didn't really become a big thing i would say until probably 2012-13 but it, nothing like it is today uh, and then facebook um, instagram and all the other forms of social media um People now have the opportunity to put their viewpoint forward in a way that they just didn't before. Now, that's a great thing in many ways. Um, Mrs. Miggins at 32 Acacia Avenue might write a letter to her local newspaper in 1995. She might get it published once a year, but that was really the only opportunity that she would have to make to get her view across. Well, when blogs started, of course, she had the opportunity to write a blog post take a few minutes publish it now she might only have 50 or 60 people ever read it but if they're in her local area she might have an influence in her local area well people got the hang of that very quickly and blogs proliferated um i was kind of a first mover with guido forks and tim montgomery at conservative home and um the, the right really dominated the early blogosphere i, I would say the left got much better at, at, at um, communicating via these mediums probably after 2010 um but and and then you had first of all the mainstream media decrying this development they thought of bloggers as rather sad people sitting in their pajamas in their mother's bedroom because they had nothing better to do or or they were people who wanted to be journalists but didn't quite cut the mustard um both entirely wrong and eventually the mainstream media subsumed blogs now and that was really after the advent of twitter now twitter was sort of blog on crack um because a blog post you can write in a few minutes and post it whereas a tweet you just respond instantly 
Uh, and that also is a great thing where people can comment on, on things, but it's also a very dangerous thing yeah. because it allows very evil people to have a voice as well. And it's very difficult uh, to filter all of those out. And I think anybody who's now vaguely in the public eye finds that a very difficult process. And it can be a quite um, depressing process where if you hit the headlines for good or bad reasons, your life can be made a living hell by people on, on Twitter. Um, so th the whole point of that was to say that um, social media has become a great democratizing thing, but also quite a malevolent thing in some ways. And I think some of the social media companies, Twitter in particular, have not acted responsibly, responsibly in trying to make sure that bad people don't misuse and abuse their platform uh, and that i think twitter more than anything has led to the, the the rise of a really bad way of communicating with each other but that's not to say that that didn't exist in the past it did but i think it's just become much more obvious of late now the book is there's elements of an autobiography in the book as well isn't it? you you sort of tell some of this um you're making the points you're making in part by uh, you know, sort of going through your own background. And that includes, um, and you've just touched on this, uh, you were an early adopter of blogging and the sort of new media way of communication, but then you actually went into um, LBC and uh, I know you'd done some written broadcast, uh, written journalism before, but you sort of moved from the new media to the traditional or the mainstream media. And I suppose that begs the question of, um, you know, the fact that, video didn't kill the radio star or this time the other way round. Yeah. the radio that you've gone into that, that all these medias coexist in the way that tv didn't kill off the radio neither of them killed off the cinema and none of them so is that is that how you see it that you're sort of you've migrated into the traditional media but that now question it gives you a bigger wider platform or what i mean to explain well, why you decided to do it perhaps I mean, I, I'd, when I was in my teens and 20s, there were two things I wanted to do. I wanted to be an MP and I wanted to be a radio presenter. Well, I tried to be an MP. I fought an election in 2005, but the electorate fought back quite massively. So and it, it was all a question of timing, really. And um, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, and by the time we got to 2010, I, I'd started a new business. I was um, started Total Politics magazine and Bitemap Publishing, and I took two years out of parliamentary selections. And by the time I got back into it, frankly, it was too late. I nearly got Bracknell. Um, I was up against Philip Lee and Rory Stewart. I think they had cause to rather regret the selection there in the end. Um, but after that, I thought, well, the next election, I'm going to be, what, 52, 53. I'm not going to flog a dead horse. And by that time, um, I'd, LBC was on the horizon. They then offered me a, a five-day-a-week show. Um, so I thought, OK, well, I've got 50% of what I uh, wanted to do, which is probably more than a lot of people ever do. But I've never seen this sort of battle between the internet media and so-called mainstream media. To me, everyone can coexist quite happily. I think what blogs did was actually hold the mainstream media to account in a way that hadn't really been done before, and they didn't like it. That's why they tried to subsume blogs and succeeded in the end. Um, and, and I think even now, you, you can see how some websites actually, I think, perform quite a good public service in keeping um, mainstream media broadcasters and journalists on their toes 
um, sometimes effectively, sometimes quite insultingly. And uh, I don't think I don't think of myself as being on the mainstream media side now, having been on the other side before. I use um, social media to promote what I do on LBC. I mean, I was on Politics Live just before coming on here. So, of course, I tweeted that I was going to be on. Now, people had a choice. I mean, they just... What I found is if I don't do that, you get people saying, well, why didn't you tell us you were on this programme? I'd have liked to have watched. So, um, but then again, there are others who say, oh, not Ian Dale again. He's on, he's on all of these programmes. Can't they find anyone else? Well, um, <laughs> you are promoting a book at the moment. So, I mean, that's, that's a good reason to be everywhere. It, it, indeed. But um, so I, I don't think my LBC show would be uh, as successful as it's been had I not use social media in this way now a lot of my colleagues don't do that some do some don't um james o'brien for example is a very good example of somebody who became um a, a quite a big name because of the internet um when his viral clips on brexit started uh, being put on facebook sort of 90 seconds of him sort of having a monologue about something or other um he attracted uh, then a much younger audience to lbc so you've got five live and radio four obsessing about getting a youth audience well we've done it i mean our 15 to 24 listenership is higher than most music stations i mean mo most music stations aimed at that age group so we've kind of got the next generation listening to us now and, and i see that through the phone calls that we get um, but there, there are some people who just don't particularly want to engage with social media in, in the mainstream media. Well, I think they're missing an opportunity. I mean, you say in the book, and you're very candid about this, that you suffer from what you call imposter syndrome or that you are a shy person. I, I think a lot of people, I think privately, and I would say this myself, feel slightly the same. So I think it's a in a sense, it's, it's interesting you said it to, 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 to make the point so other people can feel comfortable with it. But you might argue, certainly in the context of a book like this and about um, a whole range of things, that being cautious and thinking about what you say for these reasons, kind of you know, a bit like a, an airline pilot who checks everything before they take off, is a good thing. That is, you're going to be that much more cautious uh, and measured in what you do and say i mean is that do you think that therefore if you put it flipping it round people who are a bit overconfident not very shy there's a risk they're going to wade in without thinking which you sort of said about using twitter without thinking about that well, i think that, that risk is always there whatever you're doing um I, look, I host a three-hour radio show each night, a lot of which is based on phone-ins. I've got no idea who's going to phone me. I've got no idea what they're going to say. Well, actually, that's not quite true because there's somebody who answers the phone, the producer, and then they put a little summation of what the caller is going to say in the box on the screen. So I do have a vague idea of the main point that they tell the producer that they're going to make. Whether I actually do that or not is, is of course, a different matter. So I, I'm responding to what they're saying um and i mean if they're if they are incendiary then i have to follow my own advice in that i'm not i'm generally not going to have a shouting match with them i will try and calm the situation explain why they've what why what they've said is, is extreme and maybe they'd like to sort of rethink uh, and i i mean i have quite a calm well i'm told <laughs> i have quite a calm soothing voice so i i am not there as a shock jock i mean I, i've never 
thought of myself in that way. I don't go on the radio to provoke people. I, I Well, I want to provoke a good debate. But if I'm a laid, lazy radio presenter and I just want to have a full switchboard of calls all the time, I will then do all these subjects, immigration, benefits, abortion, Israel. I mean, you, you, everyone knows what they are. Um, I like to challenge my audience a bit and, and pick subjects. I mean, even now, after doing it for 11 years, there are still some subjects that I, I think, oh, we haven't ever done that. Let's do that tonight. And I, I'll give you an example. And I, I talk about this a little bit in the book. Um, some years ago, I was uh, nearly raped. Now, um, I, I, I kind of wrote it in the book as a bit of an aside. It, it only takes up, I think, one page um, because it didn't traumatize me at the time. And it, it doesn't now. Um, and the Observer interviewed me about it. They, they said it was going to be about a TV programme called I Will Destroy You, where there's a male rape scene. And they said they just wanted me to comment on it. But the actual article in the end was all about my experience, which took me aback a little bit. Um, and I thought, OK, well, let, let's actually embrace this. So the next night I did a two hour phone in and asked men to phone in if they'd ever been either raped, sexually assaulted, or somebody had attempted to do it, the switchboard went mad. And this is one of those subjects that people don't really ever talk about. And so I could use that experience that I had had um, to really send out a message to people, well, you're not alone, that there are other people this has happened to, and the, the volume of the calls indicated that. And, and when I found out from one of the um, a, a male rape charity called Survivors UK, that the average time it takes for a man to tell anybody else about that experience is 26 years. Now, if you think about the mental health, the anxieties, the depression that people will have gone through, or some people will have gone through in that time, um, that's where you can really challenge your audience in a way that you you just will never do if you're talking about brexit or coronavirus or the usual kind of subjects and often you only need five good calls in an hour to make it a good phone and you don't have to have the phones ringing off the hook you just have to have people who've got an interesting story to tell which listeners will be able to relate to so I think radio is such a powerful medium for that sort of thing. We do a mental health hour each week. Uh, we've done it since all through coronavirus. And I know because I get the emails, some, some people tweet me to say, if, if you hadn't been talking about these subjects, I would have thought I was, I was alone. And I dread to think what I might have done. I've had people say that, well, I, I, I was seriously contemplating suicide. But I listened to you and Emma Kenny. She, she's a professional psychotherapist who joins me on the program. Um, and I know that there are people alive today that wouldn't be alive had we not been doing that. Uh, and you do feel a sense of responsibility there. And uh, so it, it, it kind of goes back to the very first page of the book where I say the question that I'm most asked is when I tell people what I do. Oh, you're a shock jock then. No, I'm, I'm really not. I'd, I'd like to think I'm the antithesis of it. I mean, you're not a shock jock. And by the way, there are some questions coming in. So I don't, if you if, do put questions on the chat, I will get to you very soon. I mean, you're not a, a shock jock. And I think it's fair to say your colleagues at LBC, although they are opinionated, which is a good thing in some ways, uh, it's, not a, it, it's not doing shock jockery at all. But you live in a world, we all live in a world now with 
uh, a growing array of culture wars. Uh, Britain used to have no real culture wars in the way that perhaps American politics had on a number of issues, including uh, most obviously abortion. Whereas we've now got effectively culture wars in the sense that people who are on one side of the argument just don't want to hear or want to stop other people on the other side even being heard. So just no. a, I wrote myself a list in preparation, you know, um, clearly Brexit, um, trans rights, uh, British history changing and an understanding of, um, wokery on, I mean, anti-wokery, both sides of that argument, and even COVID-19 and whether or not you should wear a mask or not. So am I right? Do you detect at the end of your phone lines every day that we are creating more and more of these binary issues where people are simply, and I think this is the purpose of your book really, unwilling even to countenance that people on the other side should have a voice. Yes, is the answer. Um, I, I know I that's what the book's about, but... I, I don't really why like... They all come, where they all come from so suddenly? Why, why has it all appeared? Well, I don't really like this phrase, culture wars, because there's part of me that thinks the more you use the phrase, the more you're actually promulgating the fact that, that there is a culture war. But then on the other hand, if you try and pretend that it's not happening, you, try, you brush it under the carpet, I suppose. And um, part of it has come from the United States, where over the last 10 years, if you're on the right, you, you get your news from Fox News. If you're on the left, you get your news from CNN or MSNBC. And never the twain shall meet. You, you don't listen to views that might challenge your own. That has always been the case in this country to a much more limited extent in the newspaper world. Um, uniquely in this country, we have, well, or we have or had about a dozen national newspapers. Um, I can't think of any other country that, that does that. If you go to most European countries, uh, they will have regional newspapers. Very few that have daily nationals that, that have the kind of loyalty that ours have had over the years. And again, here, if you are on the right, you traditionally buy the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph. If you're on the left, you buy the Mirror or the Guardian or possibly the Independent in the, in the past. And it's now also the same on websites. If you're on the left, you, you, you might look at the Huffington Post. If you're on the right, you'll look at the Spectator. We, we've always had tribes in our life, and we, and we always will do. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm on the right tribe if, if I want to. Um, well, uh, a lot so you're a Gladstonian think, liberal, really. In well, the I, am, I am actually. You see, a lot of people think I've gone all woke recently, which for reasons I still can't quite fathom, but there we go. Um, but I, I belong to the West Ham United tribe. We, we all have our little tribes that we defend if they're under attack. And of course, Trump's great success in many ways has, has I mean, success in inverted commas, has been to polarise American society in, in a way that no other US president ha has done in history. And um, so he has got, I mean, if you look at the opinion polls at the moment, yes, he might be behind Biden, but there's a hell of a lot of shy Trump supporters out there who would never tell an opinion pollster that they vote for Donald Trump. And the fact that he's even polling in the 40s when he's doing things that I suspect most people watching us now would think are just completely unfathomable um, says a lot. And he, he made a really interesting comment yesterday where he was saying that his record on coronavirus, he'd give himself an A plus for, but he'd give himself a D for communications. 
Well, I, I think it, it's the, actually the other way around. I think in many ways he's communicated brilliantly to people who are susceptible to the, the, the types of arguments that he's putting forward. Now, we haven't quite got that in our politics, and I genuinely hope we never do. It used to be the whole sort of religious side of American politics that I feared might infiltrate our politics in this country. That hasn't really happened. But I, I'm still astonished at how many people in this country still think that Donald Trump is a bit of a god and that he, whatever he does, he's absolutely right. And they will defend him to the hilt no matter what he does, no matter what he says. Um, and uh, it's the same if you look at Putin. There are so many people in this country that will defend Putin and, and Russia and that can't see anything bad about him at all. And they will get all of their or most of their news input from Russia today or some weird conspiracy site that's probably run by David Icke. Oh, yes, exactly. Now, um, I'm going to take a first question here, if I may. This is from uh, John Smith, who's an LSE student from Newcastle. I take it that's upon time, but it could be underlined. Um, so what do you think would be the one change of policy which would have the biggest impact? Now, I guess that means what could government, broadly defined, do that would take us nearer to a more rational discourse you've touched on this already i think about media well not i mean anyway let me let you answer it rather than me answering it but what, what would you think government uk or globally should do i'm not I, I can't answer that question because i don't actually believe it's down to governments to do this i think government all governments can do um is try and set the tone themselves and uh, we have a prime minister who should we say is not too brilliant at doing that, where um, he will be in Prime Minister's questions up against Keir Starmer, who is trying to offer support and be constructive generally, not always, but generally. And then Boris Johnson throws it back in his face and just sort of starts his party political stuff. Well, that at the moment in this coronavirus crisis is not the way to go. So the only thing that politicians can do rather than government, I think, is, is to try and set a tone. That doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't have robust debates. I don't, I don't want to have a sort of saccharine prime minister's question time, but everything has its time and, and has its place. I think the media generally could do a lot to change things. Um, I, I talk a lot in the book about the art of the political interview and the fact that everything is dominated by sound bites and, and journalists putting gotcha questions to politicians rather than trying to seek for truth or get politicians to explain things. We saw that in the daily press conferences where you would have all of the big name journalists um, put questions to the prime minister or to other ministers just designed to embarrass them. They were gotcha questions, all designed to make sure that they got their slot on the 10 o'clock news. And the interesting questions, that the ones that actually did get interesting answers from the politicians generally came from the regional or local journalists that were sort of allowed to ask questions a, a little bit down the line. Because I think Downing Street worked out that, well, this wasn't working with these sort of prancing, grandstanding journalists. Let's get some others in. And um, there were so many that actually they were the ones that generated the headlines because they did get the politicians to say something interesting. We're seeing the return of the long form interview now, particularly in podcasts, where a politician after five minutes runs out of sound bites. So inevitably, they're going to say something new and hopefully something interesting. I did an hour long interview with David Cameron on Thursday last week. Um, where, where do you see hour long interviews anymore? 
And it wasn't a sort of one of these grilling forensic interviews. It, it was a conversation. But people got a lot of that out, a lot out of that because they found that, well, that they saw, maybe saw him in a different light. He opened up a lot. He was much more honest about things. Um, if you go, if you're a politician, you go into the Today programme, you know that your interview is likely to last five minutes, unless it's the main slot at 10 past eight. And so you've got two things that your spin doctors have told you you've got to get over. From the interviewer's point of view, they've got to get a news line out of that that can go around the rest of the BBC or the rest of the media, as it is supposedly an agenda setting programme for the rest of the day. So you've got these two conflicting views, and therefore the poor bloody listener gets nothing out of it. Well, I, I totally agree with that, but at the risk of defending journalists to a journalist, I mean, the difficulty surely for journalists, I, I, I take your point about the gotcha question, but I, the difficulty for journalists, I think, again and again, is that they ask a question, politicians just don't answer it. I mean, that is the difficulty, isn't it? They uh, simply will not give a direct answer. They simply either answer a different question yeah. or answer the question they decided to answer. But, but that, that is in part the format of the interview, in, in the... I, I've had so many politicians um, that they they know that they've got a, a certain time slot and they, they've got they've got a particular message that they want to get out there. So yes, they 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 go round the houses. Now um, you're only ever going to get round that by actually giving them more space. Which in today's society, where editors and producers think that the listener has got the attention span of a flea, um, that that often doesn't happen. So what you've got to do is to provide platforms where that can happen. Um, and at the moment, I mean, I, I am actually slightly encouraged that there are more programmes now that do allow a bit more of a more sort of more general conversational interview. And a conversational interview is not a soft interview. Um, people think sometimes that I'm a soft interviewer because I'm not rude to politicians. I don't shout at them um, because I just think it's counterproductive. You, you, you can actually, I, I'll give you an example. Several times I've done um, 20 to 25 minute interviews with politicians and the news line from the interview comes at minute 24 or 25 which is a bit flying by the seat of your pants because your producer's thinking well he's got nothing out of this so far um but that happens with increasing regularity because um as i say that they've often run out of things to say by that or of the prepared things to say by the time you get to that point and it's a bit like the columbo approach i mean um if you aren't of a certain meaning they detect the famous detective. american fictional detective um, yeah, and he, he would, just as he was going out the door after, after sort of quizzing a witness, he would turn around and say, just one final thing, and that was the killer question. Yeah. And, and it's slowly, slowly catchy monkey in a way. Um, and I find that, look, we all have different approaches to interviews. I like doing conversational interviews, and I don't really care if people think that they're soft, because I know they're not. And it was famously said of Sir David Frost, I mean, Sir David Frost rather than Lord Frost, who is now negotiating <laughs> Brexit, that he did these apparently gentle interviews to the point yeah. where accidentally people felt they'd fall into a trap he'd set them, which is slightly, I, I don't mean it's a trap, but it, it allowed them to become relaxed, I think. That's, you know, being relaxed and feeling it's a bit of an easier interview can be an easy way, sorry, a subtle way of getting them to say things they wouldn't normally discuss. Yeah, and, and look, every, even politicians are human beings, you know, and if you go into an interview and your first question is, um, 
Minister, why have you told an outright lie? Shouldn't you be ashamed of yourself? Well, instantly, the shutters go up. Yeah. Because I mean, that's just what human beings do. If you're under attack, the shutters go up. Your defences go up. Whereas, um, I mean, I remember the first time I ever interviewed Boris Johnson. It was the day that he announced that he was going to be candidate for London mayor. And he came into the studio. I didn't know him particularly well. Um, he sat down and I thought, well, I'll, I'll give him a bit of a soft question to start with, or what I thought was a soft question. And I said, so what's the first thing you would do as London mayor? And you could sort of see the terror in his eyes. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, well, you know, I think, yes, that was a good question. I think I'd done well. It's what would I do? I think, hmm. And it was a pre-recorded interview. So I thought, oh, should we start again? Then I thought, no, sod it. If, if he can't answer a simple question like that, a real softball question, what's he doing running for London mayor? Now, the rest of the interview passed off fine. Sure. But I did think that was quite telling. OK, that's, that's a lot more questions, enough from me. Um, Kishore Deer says... Is it wiser to ignore social media instead of providing publicity for us? It's a classic question. It's a good one, though. Just ignore it or discuss it and build I it up? It, I think it depends on what you do. Um, if I was not doing the job that I do now, would I be on Twitter? The answer is probably I would be. Would I contribute to Twitter? Possibly not. But I have to be, or I feel that I have to be on Twitter to just engage with my audience in a way and I get a lot out of it I get a lot of really interesting feedback people say well I heard you say that on the program tonight have you thought about this and so it can be a very positive thing yeah. but of course sometimes if I do say something I basically if I say anything about Brexit I mean I might as well not look at Twitter for two days um, I made that mistake yesterday um, responding to something that um David Henning, one of the trade uh, experts, had said. And within five minutes, I thought, why did you even respond? Because you just get the tired old abuse, tired old arguments, and it was just people trying to refight the referendum all over again. Uh, and there have been times where I have literally not been able to look at it, particularly if I criticise Nicola Sturgeon in any way, any way at all, um, the, the so-called cybernats descend on you like locusts. And it is a very, very unpleasant experience. And um, I sometimes then just have to switch it off and can't look at it. Not good. OK, and another question from Alberto Kessel, who's an LSE student. Uh, it's the beginning of term, so it's good to see you all. I indirectly feel you in the ether, uh, as it were. Um, have social media algorithms contributed to the creation of echo chambers, increasing polarisation surrounding political discourse? So there's, there's a sort of an issue buried in all of this of, um, uh, you know, a, an array of what goes on in social media may or may not be from human beings adding yeah. further to the problem. Well, I think that was the case on Facebook. I think Facebook have taken steps to change that in a way. Twitter, I think, is altogether very different because um, I, one, I remember one incident where I just thought, you know what, you need to stop doing this. It was at half past midnight. I was in bed. I had my laptop on my pillow. And I was engaging in, in an argument, I can't remember what about, with um, an, a Twitter profile that didn't have a picture, it just had the egg, and it had six followers. I'm thinking, 
why am I doing this? What is the point of engaging with somebody who's probably, uh, I mean, I don't know whether they're a real human being or not, but that's where Twitter, I think, has failed as an organisation. They could root out all of these uh, bots if they wanted to. Um, what I find now is invariably, if somebody's having a really aggressive go at me, uh, they've generally got under 10 followers. And you can just see from their profile, there's something odd about it. Now, I don't know whether it's sort of Russian Twitter farms or something or, or, or automated bots. I have no idea. But all I know is that these, these are not genuine people and Twitter ought to be able to root them out. It, just with the sign-up process, for example, um, they ought to be able to um, make sure that... I mean, I'm not asking for everybody to give their full name on screen on Twitter because, I mean, if you're a civil servant, for example, um, you, you wouldn't really be able to do that. Um, but there has to be a way of doing it in a sign-up process. I can do it on my West Ham blog. I can root out all of these people. And I get um, loads of people with a sort of .ru or, dot, or some weird and wonderful country where you know perfectly well just from the format of the email address that they, they have to verify themselves on. You know that they're not a, a real person. So if I can do that on my own West Ham blog, West Ham Till I Die, if there are any Hammers fans out there um, watching. Um, why can't Twitter? And I don't know the answer to that. And, and, and I mean, this is going to become a big issue, I think, personally, a big issue of public policy when it comes to the question of what proportion of the population is eventually vaccinated, assume we get yeah. there. Uh, because the degree of anti-vax... Um, uh, propagation, if that's not unfor unfortunate way of putting it, on social media is clearly going to be an element, is it not, in the extent to which a society like Britain can finally and eventually eradicate COVID-19. Well, you're absolutely right. And um, e even, I, don't, I can't remember when it was that Andrew Wakefield came out with all of this sort of anti-vax stuff, but it was probably at least uh, 12, was it 12 years ago, maybe longer, um, there are still an awful lot of people who subscribe to that point of view. And I, I did a phone in a couple of months ago about, well, if there was a vaccine, would you take it? And I was horrified by the number of people that would phone in, quite sensible people on everything else, who said, no, no, no I'd be really suspicious of it, um, because obviously these things need to be tested for years and they wouldn't have been tested enough. And I, I mean, that is actually, I mean, you, you can see the logic of that argument. Um, I mean, the Russians have said that they have uh, successfully made a vaccine that's entirely safe. But it's apparently been tested on 76 people. Now, I don't know about you, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not being anti-Russian. No, no, no. It's, but it's, I am not going to take a Russian vaccine that has been tested on 76 people. Okay, now a question from Alicia Donofrio. I hope I've got that right, Alicia. Alicia is also an LSE student. How much does political correctness, she put it in, in an inverted comma, uh, affect or limit your interviews? And you do talk a lot about this the issue of language and the use of words in the book. So uh, take us back into the book. But how far does the attempt to be, open quotes, political correct, politically correct, unquote, affect your interviews? Um, I'm not sure it affects interviews particularly. Um, I, I, I do. There are some subjects where you feel that you're walking a tightrope, and if you fall off that tightrope, it could be career-ending. And that's not because you actually want to say anything bad. It's just that 
there are some words nowadays which and particularly i mean i'm 58 there are words nowadays that i would have routinely used as would everyone else 30 years ago which are just not acceptable nowadays and i think older generations had that i mean my mother used to refer to ethnic minorities as colored people yeah and me and my sister say no you can't you can't say that word anymore she wasn't racist but that was the word that her generation used to describe somebody who was non-white. Well, if I if I said that on the radio now, there'd be Ofcom complaints about it. Um, when, when all the Black Lives Matter uh, movement started and the the, the, the George Floyd murder, um, I mean, it, th- there were a couple of programs that were, were quite uncomfortable. I, I mean, one of them actually had a very positive outcome where. I had a caller phone in, Denise in Enfield, who was black, and she accused me of looking at this through my prism of white privilege. Well, again, my natural reaction is to defend myself and say, well, I think if you'd listened to my programs over the years, you'd know that wasn't the case. She then, we went, started talking about empire. Then she started talking about the fact that there is only one non-white LBC presenter. And, um, and she said, well, and you've only got one woman. I said, well, actually, we've got two. Rachel Johnson's just joined. And she said, well, I wonder how she got through the door. And she said, I wouldn't get through the door. And I thought, you know what, you're right, you wouldn't. So she came and co-presented the programme with me the next day, um, which was, shall we say, an innovation. Now, people can say, oh, well, that's just a token thing that you've done. But she has now had a chance to prove herself. She's done about 10 programmes with me. She's now got a contract at LBC to do a programme with me every every fortnight. And she's got a chance to prove that she can get, sort of get a, a, do, a, do a real good job as a broadcaster. Now, um, I mean, I've, I've had quite a few quite tough conversations with her on air because she she will look at it from the perspective of a black woman and i it has made me think about some of the things that maybe previously held views that i've had that i have to start questioning um but you 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 mentioned the trans debate earlier on i mean that's another one which um it's about the only subject that i'm slightly reluctant to dip my toe into if i'm honest why is that because I think, it, I mean, I talk about it in the book, um, because mo- most people who do, I mean, look at J.K. Rowling, who, to my mind, has said some very inoffensive things and has stuck up for women's rights. You look at Suzanne Moore, the, the abuse that she's got, not, not least from fellow Guardian journalists on, on this issue. And um, I, I, mean, I have done trans phone-ins before, and, and, but before the, the recent furore started um but you, you say one thing out of place on on that subject something that most people would think of as entirely inoffensive but to some trans activists um you then are somebody who is beyond the pale and they will move heaven and earth to remove you from your job so um i don't shy away from many things but i'm afraid i'll be honest and say that is one that i haven't addressed in recent months Okay, well, I'll, I'll move on to another subject at that point. Um, this is from, and there's a couple of questions along the same lines, and you, you, you address it in the book, you've touched on it already, but I think it is worth giving a bit more time to, which is uh, Sidney Trompel, who's another, an LSE alumnus, do you think social media could ever be regulated in the context of free speech? And is there a way to distinguish free speech from hate speech on social media? I think does get to a, a real, and you, 
I mean, I don't want to take us back into the trans issue, but the the space between the regulation of hate speech and free speech at any point in time is a, is a difficult one, but it, it's become more difficult, hasn't it? It's an incredibly difficult area. Um, I, I am naturally, I suppose, predisposed to not wanting hate crime laws because of the free speech element where do you draw the line the scottish government i gather has got um, a proposal to have a new uh, hate crime law which would effectively render most comedians at the edinburgh festival in breach of the law now you i don't know what at the edinburgh festival do you not <laughs> Not as a comedian, I stress, but as a... No, no, I'd quite like to, but I'm not, I'm not courageous enough to do that. Um, each of us will have a different line to, to draw. Um, offending someone is not against the law, and nor should it ever be. Um, if we really go down that path, uh, we won't really be able to have much of a public discourse at all. But um, if I said something overtly racist in, in this... Uh, medium or on the radio I would expect to be held, held to account for it now should that be under the criminal law should it be under some code of conduct um, I, I don't know is the honest answer to that um, I, I, I often go on the Jeremy Vine show on channel five and they, they phoned me just before I came to do this and I'm on it on Friday and one of the subjects for discussion is should misogyny be included as a hate crime now think about that for a moment um, because I think Misogyny, and that you see, this is where I, I'm going to I'm going to tread very carefully. To me, misogyny is different to racism or homophobia, because there is an opposite to misogyny, and I think it's is it called misandry, where it's sort of, I mean, if you can prove that a man killed a woman just because she was a woman, yeah, well, good luck with that. I think that would be incredibly difficult to do. Um, somebody abuses someone just because they're a woman. I, I, I'm sure there are examples of where that's happened, but should the criminal law be involved? But, I mean, there are women who hate men as well. I'm sure there, ha there, there, there may have been women who have killed a man just because he's a man. But how do, how do you prove that? To my mind, if you're going to uh, make something a criminal offence, it's got to be reasonably cut and dried as to what the motivation was. Uh, and I think... With homophobia and racism, it is a little easier to define. But this is a, an incredibly difficult area for legislators to enter into and then for lawyers and judges to interpret. So I think you have to be very careful about trying to legislate in areas where it's not possible. I, I think it's very difficult to, um, to regulate uh, social media in many ways. Um, that's not to say you shouldn't try, but I, I, I can't remember any, anywhere that anyone successfully regulated the internet because it really would have to be done on a worldwide basis for obvious reasons. You can't just do it in one country, I don't think. No, I mean, the, I, the, and the problem, I think the further challenge is that um, you know, society's attitudes move often very fast. I mean, it's worth remembering, I'm not reminding you, but it is, I'm sort of speaking aloud, but, you know, that, there was no anti-discrimination, no anti-race <laughs> discrimination legislation until the late 60s. Homosexuality yeah. was illegal until the late 1960s in the UK. And so, in this sense, the way the public views particular subjects and their regulation when it comes to public debate is moving fast. And politics 
have to keep up with it. And the, I suppose the difficulty for, for certainly the social media, or sorry, the regulation of the social media is that it gets much nearer to pure free speech than anything that could be written in a book or a newspaper or yeah. broadcast in, on TV or radio. But, I mean, you, you look on Twitter and, and you look at the, I can't remember what the statistics were, um, but I was horrified at the number of police hours that are spent investigating tweets. Um, I could have easily reported hundreds of tweets to the police. But in the end, do I want the police spending time on people that have insulted me on Twitter, albeit in a very aggressive way? Um, or do I want them to go and catch what I would call proper criminals? There are far too many people uh, going through the legal system now um, for things that they might have said on Twitter in, in the heat of the moment. Um, that's not to say that, that, that some of them shouldn't be going through, but that the number at the moment are just, I mean, I, I know somebody at the, who is one of these people and I'm thinking, how did that ever get to court? Um, somebody in the police or the Crown Prosecution Service should have said, um, clearly this, this what, they didn't really mean this. Yes, it was a horrible thing to say, but do you really think that, 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 the, the, that they really intended carrying through with what they said um i think it, it's just got to a point where if we, if we haven't got enough police in this country well let's actually deploy them on things that really matter we've sort of kept off brexit but there is a, a sort of uh, uh, it's not a direct brexit question but I, you'll see let me give you the question and you sort of interpret it you were in favor of the uk leaving the eu you made that very clear and you've made it clear before but chris waits has asked the following Bearing in mind your book, do you think, in retrospect, the decision to leave did such damage to the social fabric of the country that the, that decision has outweighed the benefits that leaving the EU will, EU will give us? So he's sort of accepting there would be benefits, or at least the question is, but do you think that the, because it has become a bit of a culture war, do you think that despite the eruption of a, an ongoing culture war, which may take some years to be rid of, that it's still worth it. I don't want to go all over Brexit again, but do you see the difference? I'm not asking about Brexit. It's more about the damage to social discourse and relations and so on. Do you think it's still worth it despite all of that? Well, I get a lot of people often saying um, to me, oh, well, I know you'll come over to the right side in the end. You'll see that this is such a disaster that you've made a mistake. Which is incredibly patronising, actually. Yeah, no, but this is just asking in terms of the social discourse, the subject of the book, really. It's not asking, you know... Well, I, I think that if there hadn't been a referendum, I suspect we might be in an even worse place than we are from that point of view now, because I think a, a referendum in the end would have been inevitable at, at, at some point. I think that's why, why David Cameron called it, actually, because he knew he couldn't put it off forever it wasn't just a question of party management and all the rest of it that there was there was a real issue to deal with um now i totally regret some of the ways that people have talked to each other in this on both sides and, and there is there isn't one side to blame here it is it, it is both sides and I, and i had thought actually that when boris johnson won the election you could almost feel a total change in the country that everybody realised, well, that's it. 
that there wasn't going to be this divisive debate about a second referendum and all the rest of it. Uh, and when the withdrawal agreement went through and we actually formally left the legal and political structures of the EU on the 31st of January, it was as if somebody had sort of pricked a balloon and that the, the, the animus seemed to go out of the debate. Now, I think there were, and coronavirus, bizarrely then, um, took over. Um, none of us really thought about Brexit for quite a few months. Now, we are thinking about it again because of the free trade agreement and all the difficulties there. Uh, and I did a phone in about six weeks ago, and I said at the beginning, can we not run, rerun the referendum? Can we, can we just all accept we have left and it's the free trade agreement now and just look to the future? I, I could, should have saved my breath. It was the most terrible hour of radio I've ever done. And, and I got really quite irritated towards the end of it because people were just going back four years uh, and I just thought, oh my God, are we are we still here? Um, the answer is yes, of course, we will well, be. Um, I think I, so. I, I did another one a couple of weeks ago, and it was actually much better, and people were, were much more constructive. And I do think that I mean, let, let's assume, for argument's sake, that we that the free trade deal is done. I mean, I do think that will be a, a seminal moment in in this. Um, if if it isn't done. Um, this is going. This argument will go on for a very, very long time, and we see it today, where um, there's this worst-case scenario document that Michael Gove has been sent, seven thousand lorries, queue, and all the rest of it. And um, people seem to ignore the fact that it's worst-case scenario. But I mean, you have to plan for a worst-case scenario, uh, and that will reopen all the divisions if that sort of thing happens. But I mean, I am optimistic that there still will be. A deal, and if there is, I, I think over time, in the in the, in the short term, actually, um, that hopefully these divisions will be healed in, in uh, well, okay. as as possible. Ian, we must uh, stop the conversation there. I, you, you've given us a helpful prediction there that there might be a trade deal. I'm not going to ask you um, whether you think there's going to be a uh, the result of the U.S. election. Anyway. Um, just to finish the event, I'd like to thank Ian uh, for uh, joining us today in this discussion of his book, which is available uh, from, uh, well, as it says here, it's all of it. It's out now. There's a link to purchase the book on the event listing and in the chat. Signed copies of the book are also available by his, by his website. So I'd like to thank Ian. Thank, thank like you. thank all of you for joining us today and hope to see you again at the LSE very soon. And uh, goodbye.